Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Ezekiel chapter 8. Now, um, last uh, Wednesday night, there was uh, not a whole lot of you that came because of the weather, and I totally understand that. I was kind of going back and forth whether I should have canceled Wednesday evening, but, you know, the weather, the roads didn't really look seem that bad in town, and so we decided to go ahead. Plus, you know, we had the fish thing and thought, boy, you know, I'd, I'd hate to cancel and have people stuck with a bunch of fish at their house. So, so we, we went ahead and had that. And uh, um, like I said, there wasn't a, wasn't a big crowd. There was a few of us that showed up, though. And uh, it was a good fellowship. And if you weren't there, you missed it. It was, it was fun. But um, I guess what was kind of interesting was right before the service started, you know, I was trying to figure out, again, the, the thing was, pr- the projector was flickering. And so I was trying to figure out what was going on. And so... One of the things I did was I went up into the attic and uh, checked the power um, up there because we have a power cord that runs down here. And, and uh, anyways, I thought, well, you know, at least I'll, I'll check the cables, make sure they're good. And and uh, so I did that, and it was like five minutes to 7 or so, or 6.30, whatever. It was right before the service started. So I'm making my way through the attic um, from about right about here back to the back. And I just got towards the end there. And we have a platform on the end there where we store some stuff. And I kind of made a little bit of a leap. And I thought I had landed on the platform, but I didn't. And uh, my foot went right through. Well, I thought it was just a little hole because, I mean, it was the size of my foot, you know. And on the top, when you look down, I just see this little chunk. I went, oh, and I hit my shin. But, you know, not a big deal. But I got down from the ladder. And I guess everybody had heard the noise that was here. And here people were standing there and a bunch of ceiling tiles had fallen and insulation. The whole foyer was just, it was just, it was a, it looked like a meteorite or something had just fallen through the roof. It was the pastor. <laughs> Fortunately, I didn't fall all the way through. No, I, I just, uh, but anyway, so um, just before church started. And uh, so we're scrambling to clean it up. And of course, you know, I wasn't, I was hurt a little bit, but I think my pride was hurt more than anything else, my ego and everything. So here I had done something really stupid. And so anyway, so Friday fixed it and it, it, it looks okay. Um, but what I'm hoping to do, I don't know if you've ever been in the children's room in the, the, the one in the back there, not the nursery, but the next one, um, that ceiling, when we first moved into it, into there, we painted it as part of the painting, the whole facility, uh, getting the kids' room up really nice, spruced up. And the ceiling looks really great. Um, the ceiling doesn't look all that great in the foyer right now. So what I'm just saying is if any of you have the gift of painting and you're interested and you've got nothing going on and you'd like to do something this winter, it doesn't have to be right away, um, if, you wanna, if you'd like to um, step forward and say, you know what, I'd like to do that, we could use painting that ceiling in the foyer and uh, so if you want to participate in that, just let me know, and we'll, we'll arrange something. But it'll get done sooner or later. But All right, enough of that. So now everybody's going to come out there and look and go, oh, yeah, I can see it. If I hadn't said anything, you probably wouldn't have noticed. But anyways, Ezekiel chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. We had an issue last week with the recording not working, so I just wanted to make sure it's going. Cool. All right. Ezekiel 8, uh, verse 1. You know, it's kind of interesting. I'll just stop there for a moment since there's no visitors. Uh, The reason why I'm kind of like, oh, make sure the recording's going, is I've been getting emailed from different people and, and hearing from different people that don't live here in Rochester that have been subscribing to our podcasts and listening to the teachings. And so they're like, oh, man, we heard this chapter. And last week, I'm like, I couldn't. For some reason, the recording didn't go up there. And I'm like, uh, well, hopefully this week it'll be up. But, but so to me, it's a blessing to know that people are interested, at least, in wanting to listen to it. So, um, so that's why I'm kind of focusing on that. But just to bless those who are trying to follow along with us. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 1. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. So 
we're given here an exact date from Ezekiel, one year basically in two months into his calling. Uh, what he's talking about, uh, the sixth month, it's the sixth month of what? was well, the sixth month, uh, uh, sixth year and sixth month, and the fifth day after uh, Jeconiah, I think it was Jeconiah, went into captivity. Um, Jehoiachin, sorry. Jehoiachin went into captivity, and Ezekiel went into captivity with him. So he's counting everything from that time when they went into captivity. And so it's approximately one year and two months into his calling as a prophet of the Lord. And this is his second vision. And historians can go back and say, well, it was approximately 591 B.C. when this occurred. So, But what's interesting about this verse here is that Ezekiel there says that he's sitting in his house with the elders of Judah sitting before him. And you have to ask yourself, why were the elders of Judah, or excuse me, you know, they're in captivity. Why are the elders there sitting before Ezekiel in his house? And as I was thinking about that, well, really, what else was there to do? And let me explain. They're exiles in Babylon. Um, Ezekiel had already completed laying on his side for well over a year as a symbolic act that was prophesying the, uh, the length of Israel's exile. He's also cooked during that time. He's cooked meager portions of food, just basically rationed out over a fire made with dry cow pies, basically. And so, you know, that would definitely cause people to go, ooh, that's kind of different. Um, but it was a symbolic act prophesying the coming famine that would occur in Jerusalem when the last siege would take place and the last exile or the last group of people that were in Jerusalem would go into exile. The temple would be destroyed. During that time, it'd be a famine that was just terrible. And this was a prophetic, symbolic act prophesying that. He's also already stomped his feet and pounded his fists as he's prophesied to the mountains. Remember, God told him to do that. That was a symbolic act to reveal to the people that they had stopped listening to God, and so God was now going to start speaking to the mountains because the people had stopped listening. So, I mean, there, all these things had already taken place. And so by this time, Ezekiel was recognized by the people there in Babylon as being a prophet of the Lord. And so if you're one of the people there, you can imagine them going, well, I wonder what weird thing he's going to come up with next. So let's just check it out. We'll just sit there and uh, watch him. And since no temple or public place to worship the Lord existed in Babylon. There was no temple. There was no synagogue. No, nothing like that. Why not hang out at the man of God's house to find out what would be the next word of the Lord that God would communicate to his people through him? And so, you know, uh, I don't know, you know, to Ezekiel, maybe this might have been an encouraging sight. Man, look at all these people. They're coming to, to listen to what I have to say from the word of the Lord, you know. And it, so it may have been uh, encouraging to Ezekiel. Uh, but, you know, God sees their hearts. And later on, when we get to chapter 33, the Lord is even going to speak about this very thing, about the elders coming and sitting, sitting before Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 33.30, he says, And as for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. Everyone saying to his brother, Please come and hear what is, excuse me, please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. And so even though they were coming there and listening to what Ezekiel had to say, and it may have looked good on the surface, and it may have been an encouragement to Ezekiel, because Jeremiah, nobody would come to him, but they're coming to listen to Ezekiel. God says, yeah, they're coming, but you know, their hearts, they're listening, but they're not obeying what I'm speaking I wonder why we're here this morning. You know, do we come just to hear me speak or do we come here to hear a word from the Lord and going, you know what, Lord, whatever you speak to me today, I want to respond in obedience to what your spirit speaks through the pastor. You know, we have to sometimes examine ourselves. Now, if you also remember, God had told Ezekiel 
that he would shut Ezekiel's mouth. Remember that? He says, I'm just, you're going to be mute until I give you words to speak. And only when God gave Ezekiel a message, then he would be able to speak. So you can imagine these elders, they come into the house, and I'm wondering to myself, I wonder how long they were just sitting there, and Ezekiel's not saying anything. And they're just sitting there watching Ezekiel, and Ezekiel's just sitting there, you know, maybe reading the paper, whatever, you know, whatever he's doing. He's just, And it's like, how long was it? Days? Weeks? Who knows how long they had sat in front of him and probably in silence. How awkward that would have been. How do you think Mrs. Ezekiel would have felt? Because he was married. How do you think she would have felt? It's like, here's this group of guys sitting in the house. No one is saying anything. They're all just looking at her husband. And she's there trying to do her daily, whatever she's got to do, the chores or whatever, cleaning up, whatever. Can you imagine? It's like, oh, I guess I've got to feed 30 more guys, you know, make some more falafels again. And here we are feeding more people. They're here every day. It would have been kind of awkward. So picture yourself there. Ezekiel is sitting there, probably in silence. The elders of Judah are just sitting there like watching him, like, I wonder what's going to happen next. And as he's sitting there, something happens to Ezekiel. And I believe that the elders are oblivious to it. They don't know what's going on. But the Lord appears to Ezekiel in another vision. Look at verse 2. Then I looked, and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward fire, and from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber. So he sees this vision of the Lord again, of Jesus, the, the you know, pre-incarnate vision of Jesus. And from his waist downward, he's seeing fire. Now, fire in the Bible is a picture of judgment, and it's a picture of refining, of burning away those things, those impurities, that leaving only precious metals. That's what a fire is, a picture of in the Bible. And so from his waist downward, he's seeing the fire. From his waist upward, the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber, he says. And it's like a highly polished brass finish. I mean, it, it, what is that? That's a picture of holiness in the Bible. The Apostle Paul describes God's holiness in 1 Timothy 6.16, and he says that God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see because of His holiness. And so Ezekiel seeing this picture, and God's revealing Himself to Ezekiel in the sense of a God of judgment, a God of refining, and also a God of holiness. Verse 3. He stretched out the form of a hand. doesn't mean he had a hand, but he stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. Now, I grew up in the Star Trek generation, so I'm very familiar with it. Some of you have too. Probably most of you have too. Ezekiel, I don't believe, was beamed out of his living room, you know, transported all of a sudden, you know, that funny noise and, you know, the sparkly stuff, and, and all of a sudden he just disappeared. They're like, where'd he go? Um, I don't believe that's what happened. However, that would not have been out of the possibility. It would not have been out of the realm of possibility because, remember, Elijah the Spirit of the Lord kept transporting Elijah all over Israel and trying to keep him from getting killed by Ahab and his men. Whenever Ahab would send him somewhere, you know, Elijah would say, Hey, tell your king I'm here. And they're like, Ugh. Yeah, right. We're going to go back and tell our king that you're here and you're gonna, the Spirit's going to take you away somewhere else again. You know, they, they, they didn't believe him. Um, and then in the New Testament, you recall that Philip was transported by the Lord. He's, I don't know how it happened, but he just boom, beam and went... The Spirit of the Lord took him to different places. So it's not outside of the realm of possibility that that would have been what happened. But I don't believe that's what happened in this case. You maybe have a different opinion. But in my opinion, Ezekiel is just still sitting there in front of the elders. But he's going in a vision. The Lord's giving him a vision. Taking him in a vision all the way back to Jerusalem and back to the temple. Because remember, the temple's still standing. There's still people that are still living in Jerusalem at this time. They're not all in Babylon at this time. 
And so the Spirit takes him by vision to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the door of the north gate of the inner court. And that door is what separated the outer court from the inner court of the temple. That would have been the place where they would have been bringing sacrifices into the temple to offer to the Lord on the brazen altar. And so there in the inner court, Ezekiel sees what he says is the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. What is he talking about? Where sacrifices were being offered to the Lord, or where they were supposed to be offered to the Lord on the brazen altar, in its place there is an idol that's sitting right there in the temple. Now we're not told specifically which idol there was there. It could have been the Asherah pole. That was a form of of Baal worship that it could have been a pole there that had been put up there uh, by by the people there. Some scholars believe that it was Semiramis or Semiramis. That was the Babylonian queen of heaven. And uh, she was, according to their legend, was the wife of Nimrod. Nimrod's in the Bible. He was the world's first dictator by the by by uh, in case you didn't realize that. But although we're not told specifically which idol it was, we are told how God viewed this idol. It provoked him to jealousy. Think about it. Here where sacrifices to the Lord were to be offered, instead an idol was set up by the people to usurp the worship that was meant to be for God alone. And there's a competing idol being worshipped in the temple, in God's temple, in God's place, in His dwelling place. He's having to share His glory with a false god. And what kind of really catches Ezekiel's attention, he says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the vision that I saw in the plain. And I think this is what floored Ezekiel. Because in spite of the presence of the idols that the people of Jerusalem had defiled the temple with, Ezekiel is noticing, hey, wait a minute, God's still there. He's still in the temple. And that just kind of shocked Ezekiel. He's drawn to the fact that the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory of the Lord is still there in the temple. And yet he's being forced to share uh, his glory with a false god there. Ezekiel's just, that, that's what caught his eye. This is significant, and we'll revisit that a little bit later on here this morning in our study. Now, in chapter 10, because chapters 8 through chapter 11 is all one vision, basically, and we're not going to get to all of it this morning, of course, but in chapter 10, in this same vision, Ezekiel witnesses the glory, that Shekinah glory of the Lord departing from the temple. But at this point, the glory of the Lord is still there. And God's now going to make it abundantly clear to Ezekiel why he's going to depart his temple and why the temple's going to be destroyed, you know, uh, in the rest of his vision. So verse 5. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was this image of jealousy in the entrance. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go away, go far away from my sanctuary? Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. And while, so while Ezekiel is, is amazed that God's presence is still in the temple alongside with this pagan idol, God's basically telling Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you haven't seen the half of it yet. It gets worse. Verse 7. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. What the Lord had showed Ezekiel in his vision so far you know, in that, in that inner court there where that idol was, it was pretty much out in the open. That was, you know, more of a, a common place. But now the Lord is telling Ezekiel to dig a hole into the wall, and it's to expose to Ezekiel the things that were taking place in secret in these side chambers of the temple. Those things that were behind closed doors, which were hidden from view for the normal public. God says, Ezekiel... Dig through the wall, 
Ezekiel sees the door. He says, open the door and check out what's in there. You see, nothing is hidden from God's view. And, and God has given Ezekiel a sneak peek, so to speak, um, to what he sees behind closed doors in his temple. And so Ezekiel has dug a hole in this wall, and he sees a door in verse 9. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. This was probably the practice of a secret Egyptian cult that worshipped animals, animal worship. The Gentile world had descended to pantheistic idolatry. What that is, it basically denies the person of God or the personality of God, and instead God is manifested in nature, manifested in creation, and nature gets elevated to deity. And, you know, you can go into some places in the world and animals are worshipped to this day. You know, people are starving in India, but they won't eat a cow because a cow is holy, you know. Or the rats, the holy rats. I mean, there's all these different animals that people worship uh, as gods. And this is what Ezekiel comes here, and he sees these images on the walls inside the temple chambers. You know, today, this type of worship still continues, where people are worshiping the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. You know, people get caught up into worshiping the environment. You know, be good to Mother Nature, Mother Gaia, the earth, you know, or, or the worship of animals, animal rights. You know, animals are humans too. Wait a minute. No, they're not. <laughs> it, it, it's occurring today too in our, in our culture. Paul describes this descent into the worship of nature in Romans 1. In verse 22, he says, Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And it says there in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creator, excuse me, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And if you continue reading there in Romans, the Apostle Paul describes it's basically a downward step every time. You know, they, they go from denying God to worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. And the next step, we won't read it today, but the next step spiraling downward is into unnatural sexual desires. It's just it goes from bad to worse to worse to worse. And God basically just gives them up. Just gives them up to whatever they're going to do, whatever their whatever their evil hearts are going to do. God says, "Okay, just I give up." And so, in the chambers of the temple, behind closed doors, Ezekiel sees all these images of animals that are being worshipped, and their images are posted all over the walls of the chamber inside this temple. You know, man sees the idols he worships. As appealing. Those things that we worship, you know, the things that, you know, they kind of take our eyes off the Lord, they're not ugly to us. They're appealing, whatever it might be. But God sees the idols that man worships as they really are and what effect they have on man. And he says, man, they're creeping, abominable, detestable things. The things that we like that are not of the Lord, God says, man, they're disgusting. You need to get them out of your life. Verse 11. And there stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel. And in their midst stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Now the seventy men, that's, that's significant in our chapter here. Later on in the history, in Israel's history, this would be the number of the men that made up the Sanhedrin the Council of the Elders in Jesus' day. Their origin comes back all the way back to the time when Moses was given the law. And he's there at Mount Sinai, and Moses tells God, or excuse me, God tells Moses to take 70 elders among the children of Israel along with himself and Aaron and go up on Mount Sinai. 
And they were basically there to behold the glory of Jehovah and to witness the receiving of the covenant. They were given a special insight into the things of God that the rest of the people weren't given. And God says, take 70 men up there and, and elders of the, of the people. I want them up there to experience what you're experiencing, to see what you're seeing. They've been given that privilege, that blessing, that honor. Of course, they kind of freaked out up there on the mountain, but that was the blessing that God had given them. Well, this respected body of elders in Jerusalem, they're in this chamber where all these wild animals are being worshipped, and here they're each burning incense in their censer, in their censers, you know, little balls with the chains, you know, that they wave around. Um, and it's in the midst of all these images of these idols. Now, there's a couple things. Or there's more than a couple things wrong with this. First of all, they were the elders. They weren't the priests. Only the priests were to burn incense in the temple. And so here, these ordinary elders, these men, these men, you know, these seventy men, they're sitting there burning incense there in the temple. What basically they had done is they basically forsaken God's law. God says, this is how I want to be worshipped. And they basically said, you know, we're going to worship the way we want to worship. And we're going to worship what we want to worship. And they basically took the worship that had been prescribed by God and they said, we're going to do it our own way. And you see that today too. People say, I don't, yeah, yeah, I see what the Bible says, but that's not what my God, my God isn't the God of the Bible. My God's this or my God's that or, you know, and I want to worship the God the way I, way I see him or whatever. And it's basically the same thing, worshiping God according to their own ways and not according to the Lord. You know, when I was studying this, one thing that kind of popped out to me is that I know, I can tell probably pretty sure that Ezekiel is not a Minnesotan. You might go, huh? He's not a Minnesotan. Why? Because he's naming names. And that's just something you don't do in Minnesota, right? Minnesota nice? You don't, you don't, you don't, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about. Let me give you an example. Let's say you were out ice fishing. Maybe you're into ice fishing. And, uh, you know, it's early in the season. You think maybe this lake's going to be good for going fishing on. So you, so you go out there with your portable ice shack, and you're, you're getting ready to go step out on the ice, but you go, man, it's just not thick enough yet. It's too thin. And uh, so you're, like, standing there on the shore, realize that it's just not cold enough yet, and so you've got to wait maybe another week or so. But you see this other guy walking out. He's got his ice, portable ice shack. He's got all his gear, and he's, he's going across, starting heading out onto the lake, and you hear the ice kind of crackling, you know, and you hear this, the weird sounds that you hear. And uh, if you're from Minnesota, you'd probably say something like this. You know, a guy could get pretty wet if you, the ice he was falling in, you know, cracked. Oofta. I mean, you know, they, a guy could. If you're from New Jersey, you'd probably say, hey, dummy, get off the ice, all right? If you're from California, you'd probably say, dude, is it always this cold out here? <laughs> but Minnesota nice, you don't name names, you know. Now, we're not to go around parading each other's sins and shortcomings publicly. However, if you look in the Bible, there are times where the Holy Spirit specifically mentions people by name. Paul did it in his ministry. Here, Ezekiel, he, he sees this, this guy among the 70 elders, and he's like, I'm going to name names. It was Jehazaniah who was among them. You see, I believe there are exceptions where it's important to name names when it comes to sin that can lead others astray. And you see, Jehazaniah was in a position of respected position as one of the elders, and he was, one, he was probably one of the main guys or one of the leaders of the 70 elders. And, and he was leading all these other people astray. And so Ezekiel's like, man, Jehazaniah, names him by name. So Ezekiel sees this guy that he knows in his vision, and he writes it down later in his scroll, making mention of Jehazaniah by name. We go, well, who is Jehazaniah? Well, we're told that his father was Shaphan. Who was Shaphan? Shaphan had worked with Josiah to reform the land of Judah from idolatry back during Josiah's reign as king. He was a scribe to Josiah the king. Jehazaniah had two other brothers. Their brother, his brother was Gemariah and Ahikam. Both of those guys were close friends of Jeremiah. 
and they were they they were sympathetic to Jeremiah and they stuck up for Jeremiah and they defended Jeremiah. In other words, what's amazing to Ezekiel is Jeazaniah came from a good home. He had a godly father and godly siblings. And here he is, stooped into this pagan idolatry. He had been exposed to the scriptures, because if you recall back to the story of Josiah, when you know the, the nation was steeped in idolatry, the temple basically was just it was just run down. Nobody went to the temple anymore. The word of God had just kind of basically disappeared. The law, the, the the commandments of the Lord, nobody read it anymore. They basically were doing their own thing. And one day Josiah tells his man, "I want to start fixing up the temple." And so they go in there, they start clearing the temple. They're taking out all the old junk, and and they're trying to fix it up and they, they come across these scrolls and and Shaphan and another guy they, they they start looking at the scrolls and they realize man this is the word of the Lord this is God's commandments and they go and they bring it to Josiah Josiah reads it and he just repents he just he just starts breaking down crying weeping because he realizes that they have been so they've gone so far from God's word and both Josiah and and Shaphan they repent of their sin, and they start together ridding Judah of idolatry. They start reforming the land, tearing down the idols to Baal and all the things, the high places. They start doing all this reforming. This was the house that Jeazaniah grew in. He had that godly heritage. And yet, here he is, apparently a leader among the 70 elders, he should have known better. He had no excuse for his sin. And here the Holy Spirit is outing him. Why? Because he was a man of influence and a man that could lead others astray. And that's what he had done. And so the Holy Spirit's like named Jehazaniah by name. What's also interesting here, like I mentioned earlier, each one of these guys are burning incense in their censers, which only the priests were supposed to do. But there's so many of them, there's 70 guys, and each one of them's got a ball of incense that Ezekiel knows, man, there's this cloud in this chamber. I mean, it's like you can barely see through there. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown is, a, is one of the commentaries that I sometimes refer to. And they make this observation regarding the amount of incense being burned that it's so much that it had formed a cloud. It says, They spared no expense for their idols. Oh, that there were the same liberality towards the cause of God. And they just, there's no expense to the idols that they worshipped. Man, if people would, if the men of, if the people of God would do that for the cause of God. Now, I used to own a Harley Davidson, and uh, I know the temptation to spare no expense for the thing that you love. You know, I bought this bike, and it was kind of a more or less a, a basic model. I mean, it had a little few extras with it, but um, you know, I wanted to put a windshield on, a backrest, uh, you know, different things. I wanted to put forward controls, if you know what those are. And uh, it's funny with Harley Davidson about everything you do. Like, I want a backrest. You think, okay, or you look on the internet and go, oh, I can see them on Amazon for like 100 bucks. Go to Harley and it's 300 bucks. You know, you want a windshield? 300 bucks. Forward controls? Everything's like 300 bucks. And so you're just plunking down 300 clams every time you want to do something. And, uh, you know, they have got the corner on marketing because not only do they sell motorcycle accessories, but, you know, if you really, really love your Harley-Davidson, you can buy jewelry, Harley-Davidson jewelry. You can buy Harley-Davidson clothing. You can buy Harley-Davidson patio furniture. Um, you can even buy barbecue utensils that are Harley-Davidson, uh, glassware, et cetera, et cetera, ads, nauseam. You know, ad nauseam, whatever you want. I mean, you can go all overboard. And I'm not saying that owning a Harley Davidson means you're owning an idol, but you can see how some people it can become an idol. And you look at some people and they have the patio furniture and if you have patio furniture Harley, I know there's a few people that are related to some Harley Davidson owners. I'm not saying that, but but you know, you can see how people get they just spare no expense for the things that they love. It's not just about that, though. It's true in so many things that you and I worship in the place of God. We're willing to spare any expense for whatever it is that we have that, you know, that, that, that has that desire, that pull for us. You know, Jesus talked about the rich fool who laid up treasure for himself. And the reason why he was foolish was because he wasn't rich toward God. And it's a real danger for Christians 
And Ezekiel sees this among those 70 elders, a cloud of incense. Verse 12. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. You know, these... 70 elders, they still had the respect of the nation because of the position that they held. They were still people that were looked up to. They had a certain level of influence over others. And so on the surface, people looked at these godly men. And yet, in secret, they're steeped in idolatry, and they think nobody sees. Well, God sees. He sees everything, and he's giving Ezekiel a sneak peek. And God's saying to Ezekiel here, you still haven't seen it all, Ezekiel. There's more. Verse 14. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now there's lots of varying descriptions of Tammuz. But Chuck Missler says this. Tammuz or Tammuz, I don't know how you want to pronounce it, the son of Nimrod and his queen, Semiramis, was identified with the Babylonian sun god and worshipped following the winter solstice on about December 22 to 23. Tammuz was thought to have died during the winter solstice and was memorialized by burning a log in the fireplace. And the Chaldean word for infant is Yule. This is the origin of the Yule log. Now, his rebirth was celebrated by replacing the log with a trimmed tree in the next morning. Ooh. Now, before you get too upset, I know some people think, you know, what's a pagan symbol of worship doing in a, in a, in a house of the Lord? Before you get too upset about the Christmas decorations here or in your own home, are we worshiping Tammuz? No, no, right? We're worshiping the birth, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Um, some people can get very, very uptight and legalistic about things like this. And if it's your conviction, you know, I'm not telling you to change your convictions. You know, I understand that, you know, someone maybe worship, you know, maybe being, was a pagan, celebrated the winter solstice and all that, all this stuff, and, and now they're a born-again Christian. They don't have anything to do with anything that reminds them of that past lifestyle. And, and you know, I understand that, and I totally respect that. Um, and so the problem, though, is that too often people with very strong convictions about what I would say is a non-salvation issue, they expect others to have the same convictions, and it can get very legalistic and very judgmental. And, and I can say, I think with authority, that the Bible is clear that God is more concerned with the conditions of our hearts this morning than whether or not we have a Christmas tree in our house or in the sanctuary here. Besides, I mean, it gets pretty dreary and drab here in Minnesota in winter, right? In December, everything's white. So it's nice to break it up with a little festive colors here. But... But here's the real issue with the women weeping for Tammuz. First of all, it was a substitute for the worship of God. And the worship of Tammuz was a worship of sex. Um, it was, a, it was uh, part of the sacrifice to Tammuz involved women offering up their virginity as a form of worship. And as a result, with the worship of Tammuz, there would be orgies, gross immorality practiced in the name of this religion. It was basically a religion focused on worshiping sex. Now, I don't think anybody today says, I'm a worshiper of Tammuz, but, you know, look at our culture that we're in today. We are in a sex-saturated culture. You can't go anywhere on the media without being bombarded by it. You can't, you know, everything is involved around sex or advertising everything. So the worship of Tammuz, even though it's not called that, it's alive and thriving in our culture today. Well, here's these women in the temple worshiping Tammuz. Verse 15, Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, and you will see greater abominations than these. Ezekiel, you still haven't seen it all. 
Verse 16, So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were worshiping the sun toward the east. Now again, the number is significant here in this prophecy. Um, the course of priests, there was a certain set of priests that were to minister in the temple, and there would be 24 of them plus one high priest, which makes 25. So what Ezekiel is seeing here in the temple is basically the entire priesthood who are serving in the temple at this time. And what's even more significant than this is what they're doing. They have their back towards the temple and their faces toward the east and they're worshiping the sun, the S-U-N, not the S-O-N. They're worshiping the sun. Israel had been specifically warned by God in Deuteronomy 4.19. It says, And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. God warned them. He warned them, don't put up images. If you put up images, you're liable to start worshiping them. They have images of idols in their temple. He says, don't start thinking that you're going to start worshiping the sun. There they are. They got their backs to the Lord, and they're worshiping the sun. They've got their faces to the sun. With their backs turned towards the temple, basically what it is, they are willfully and purposely rejecting God and embracing the worship of the sun. Which, by the way, it was, a, it was part of a, also part of a Egyptian worship, and it, and, and it, got, it got into uh, Satanism, actually. This must have been very shocking for Ezekiel to observe. Because on the outside, the temple, you know, you look at the building, it looks like the holy place. You see these people going in and these, the priests and the elders and you go, wow, you know, the, 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 everything's going on in the temple like it's supposed to. And they're worshiping the Lord. And yet behind closed doors, this is what God saw. The idolatry. He saw the ugliness of sin that was hidden from plain sight within the temple. Verse 17, And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will also act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. God says, you know, it, to them it's a trivial thing, but is it really a trivial thing, what they're doing? He says, indeed, they put their branch to the nose. Now, it's like, what in the world is he talking about? Um, I think what that actually means is, is lost to us in the translation. But I think the meaning is clear. By their attitudes and by their actions, they're basically thumbing their nose at God. I think that's what it means. They're basically thumbing their nose. You see, God here is presenting to Ezekiel the spiritual condition of the remnant of the Jews who are still back in Jerusalem. Now, if you were a Jew back in Jerusalem at this time, and maybe you weren't one of the 70 elders or the, or the priests, you're just one of the, the, the common, ordinary people there, and you go, you know what? The Babylonians came and they took those captives away. God's punishing them because they were bad people. But we're here. God's still blessing us. We still have the temple. We still have the worship of, of Jehovah here. You know, we're in a good place. And, and we must be special. And, and God must be okay with us and, and loves us and everything. They're still safe in the city. The thing is, they were deceived. They were deceived by their own hearts. Their spiritual condition was to the point where God basically was reaching what I would call a tripping point. What do you mean by that? I thought God was a God of infinite patience and mercy. He is. But God does have a tripping point. And with the house of Judah, because of the abominations that he showed Ezekiel, what he sees that was hidden but was in his eyes as plain Basically, they were reaching a tripping point, and God is showing Ezekiel, says, Ezekiel, I want you to fully understand why I'm departing the temple, why I'm going to punish these people, and why I am going to turn my back on these people because they've turned their back on me 
over and over and over again. And, and so he's, the Lord's basically justifying, to not that he needs to, but he's basically giving Ezekiel a reason so he can go back to the people and say, this is what's happening in Jerusalem because of our sin. A tripping point. You know, if you're, you know, work on electrical things and you have a fuse, you know, a fuse is a tripping point. And, and, and you know, a fuse will take a certain amount of punishment, you know, overload a current until it goes beyond its rated, whatever the rating is on the fuse. And once it's, there's too much current flowing through that little tungsten or whatever the, whatever the fuse material is, once there's too much current, too much heat built up, finally it just blows. And once it blows, that circuit's dead. You, you can't put power back. There's no way you can do anything to get power back unless you replace that fuse. And God's reaching a turning point of no turning back, a tripping point with the children of Judah. They've finally exhausted his patience for hundreds of years, over and over and over again with prophet after prophet, warning after warning. And God says, that's it. I'm done. So chapters 9 through 11, God is showing Ezekiel how his patient runs out. Now there's, at the end of chapter 11, God's going to give them some hope because he hasn't totally forsaken his people. He still has a plan and a purpose for Israel. And he will bring them back out of captivity. But he wanted to get the point across clearly that his patience had ran out. They had turned their back on him. Now he's going to turn his back on them. And I, you know, I look at us today, and I go, well, is there, a, is there an application for us? I mean, we don't worship in a temple or anything, but you know what? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God not only, not only judges our outer actions, but He searches our hearts. And there's, if there's things in our hearts that are competing to God's allegiance, you know, there's things that are rivals in our hearts that, that are, are keeping us from worshiping God wholeheartedly. Those are idols. And it's really, if you look at it, it's really not that different than what God was seeing in the temple here in Jerusalem. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know, and I think those people in Jerusalem, you know, I think they had got so... Uh, you know, caught up in what they were doing, I think they didn't see how sinful they had become. I don't think they had saw how far they had departed from the Lord and and how they had grieved the Lord as bad as they had. I honestly think that they were deceived at that point and they were just blind to what they were doing. And so God, who sees it, was revealing it. And I think sometimes for you and I, you know, we have sinful thoughts or we harbor anger or resentment, or we have these attitudes that are not of the Lord, that we kind of, they're, they're, they're there. And we kind of don't want to deal with them. And they kind of tucked away. God sees those areas in our hearts. He sees the sinful thoughts, the sinful attitudes, the sinful motivations. He sees those things that we put up in our lives that compete with the worship of Him. He, he sees that stuff. So what do we do? You know, it grieves the Lord. What what can we do? Well, I think what we can do is get before the Lord and ask the Lord to reveal. If there's any of those things, reveal it to me, Lord. Psalm 26.2 says, Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. Psalms 139.23 Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I think that's something that we need to do as believers. You know, we need to take time. We need to stop once in a while and say, Lord, examine my heart. Has anything crept in that doesn't belong there? Jesus said in John 3.20, For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deed should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So what can you and I do? Man, come to the light. 
come to the light. Allow God's word, allow God's spirit to expose those areas. Be honest with the Lord. I mean, he already sees it anyways. And then confess those things and repent, which means turn away from those things. Those are the things that we can do. And so I do definitely see an application here for us as believers today. And, you know, it's interesting as we keep going through this, God is reminding the children of Israel over and over and over again. And maybe, you know, if you've been here through Jeremiah and through Lamentations and now through Ezekiel, you go, you know, you, you keep touching on the same thing over and over again. Um, the Holy Spirit does that because he's trying to get a point across to us as he was trying to get across, point across to his people. And so, you know, I, if I can encourage you in anything, it's just don't just take this as, well, that was an interesting thing. I, you know, I want to look up some more about that study of the Yule Log. And all, you know, I mean, that, that's fine. That's fine to do that. But prayerfully say, Lord, is there an area in my heart that you see that's not of you? And then if he reveals it to you, man, let me encourage you to do something about it. Okay. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you that uh, you are a patient and a gracious Lord. And Father, I thank you that you don't condemn us, Lord, but you do, Lord, you do warn us. And you do encourage us. And you do plead with us to put you first in our lives where you deserve to be. And Father, I thank you for each person here. Lord, I thank you for their devotion to, to you, first of all. Lord, that their, their commitment to this fellowship, Lord, their participation in it. Lord, I thank you for them. Lord, I just pray that for each one of us, Lord, that we would do that soul searching by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would ask you just to reveal to us if there's any, any areas in our hearts where we need to change. And, Lord, that we would have the courage to expose those things to the light, to your light. And that, Lord, we would confess them and we would repent and turn from them. Lord, that we would have no competing idols, no rivals in our hearts with you, Lord God, but that you alone would be dwelling supremely on the throne in our hearts. And so we just thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people this week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you guys. I hope you have